Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Another week and another biblical passage awaits for us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Last time we looked in on the story of Nicodemus and his famous conversation with Jesus that we saw in John chapter 3. This week we'll look in on another of these uh, famous conversations that people had with Jesus. And this one is found in the very next chapter in John chapter 4. Now, the proximity of these two accounts provides for excellent comparison and contrast between the two people and their conversations. So this week we'll go through the story, and then next time we'll make the comparisons and even go beyond that story, and kind of the epilogue, so to speak. So our conversation we'll look at today is one of great encouragement as we see the pursuit that the Lord makes for the likes of us. And we see the gift that he is offering in a different light or put in some different wording. So we're going to begin our account in John chapter 4 and verse 3, where because of some controversy, Jesus is going to leave Jerusalem and go back to Galilee. So we read in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But, verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Well, that's a strong word, a word of necessity, uh, even carries the idea of compulsion. He definitely had to go through Samaria. There's a real reason for this, and we wonder, what, well, what, what could it be? Well, why is this an issue anyway, that he needs to go through Samaria? Samaria is a region that lies to the north of Judea and Jerusalem, and it's actually in between, so to speak, between Jerusalem and Galilee. And the normal path that one would take to get from Jerusalem into Galilee would to take the Jordan River. Uh, and because it's flat and so forth, and you get on the west side of the river, you're actually not in Samaria, as the river is the boundary. And then you can make your way up into Galilee. And by crossing the river and going up the west side of the Jordan River, you're not in Samaria. You're avoiding that by way of the boundary area there completely. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans, as you may have heard, they didn't get along at all. In fact, they had a long history of animosity between them. Now, who are the Samaritans? Well, if we go back in our Bible, back to David, and then after David and King David, there was Solomon, and Solomon was the one who built the temple, a Jewish king, and this was kind of in the glory years of of the Jewish nation of Israel. Uh, Soon after Solomon passed, the nation split into two sections. There was like a civil war. They divided over political and economic and religious reasons. Political reasons, they were no longer going to be under the same king. Uh, The economic reason behind that is there was a lot of tension about taxes and high taxes that the northern tribes didn't want to pay. And the religious uh, controversy was they didn't want to keep having to come to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. They wanted something closer. They thought they'd build their own temple. 
And they did. The people of the northern tribes of Israel, north of Judea, uh, they built a temple at Mount Gerizim, and later this area became known as Samaria. Now, these were the ten northern tribes called in the Old Testament Israel, and the prophets would prophesy to Israel. The two southern tribes were called Judea, and that was the area of Jerusalem and down in that area. Um, and so this was the split. And eventually the, the ten northern tribes, there were many warnings given to them by God and how uh, the prophets would warn that the Assyrians are going to come and overrun you. And they did. And they scattered many of the Jewish people all over the place. And then they also had a lot of uh, Gentile Assyrians and other Gentiles from all over the Middle East come and move in and populate this land. And so it became, due to intermarriages and so forth, a lot of really mixed uh, uh, people groups. And and the Jewish piece, uh, part of that, those who were Jews, were now half-breeds and bred in many different types of uh, uh, ethnicities and so forth. And so the Jewishness is lost, and their religious desires for the things of the Lord were lost. But they did maintain, they did still believe in the first five books of the Bible called Torah. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And uh, they did mix in then a lot of other things, syncretized from a lot of other religions and so forth. And now hundreds of years have gone on, and the Jews completely disavow them. They say, we want nothing to do with you. You're half-breeds. You're not uh, in any way uh, faithful to the Lord. You don't. You have this mixed religion in your own temple, and it's all awful. And so they despised the Samaritans and even considered them as spiritually unclean, to even be to touch them or to travel into their land. You, you could become unclean and would have to cleanse yourself at the temple or whatnot. So by all means, they would just avoid Samaria and travel off on a little bit of a detour, go up the Jordan River, etc. But now uh, we see they both then would have this like almost a sanctified prejudice. They would root it in their religious beliefs, a bigotry toward one another going both ways. But we read in verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So why? Well, we'll hopefully find out here why. In verse 5, it says that he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, or noon. So he comes to Sychar, and he is obviously tired, and he sits by the well, showing he's fully human here. He's weary, he's tired, and he wants to eat. In fact, we'll see in two verses later that he, he sent his disciples into Sychar, into town, to get some food. So from verse 8, we see that they're now going into the Samaritan town or city. Now, put yourself in those disciples' feet. They're going to head straight into a Samaritan town. Walking into town, man, that's going to be awkward. The Jews would dress with certain prayer shawls and things, so they're easily marked. Hey, those are Jews. What are they doing here? You know, can you just imagine as they're trying to find some food, the sorry we're closed signs that pop up and, and the glares they're going to get. And man, they are not in their comfort zone. I mean, they're going to say, man, mama told me not to go here. Mama told me not to go to places like this. This is spiritually unclean. There's not even, we're going to probably not even find kosher food to, to bring back to eat. Oh, this is no place for good, upstanding, law-abiding Jewish people, boys like us. Why are we here? What are we doing here? Oh, yeah, Jesus sent us here. That's right. We're here because the Lord sent us. 
with a task. And you know, if you're saved, if you know the Lord Jesus, you, you know, he might have you as a follower go places that you're not always comfortable with and to get stretched out of your comfort zone. He might have you talk to people who you normally wouldn't talk with. He, he might have you be involved with people that they don't really talk like you or they don't really look like you. Uh, they may not vote like you. He might, he might have you stay and be immersed in these kind of situations for some time. And that's clearly, obviously, not going to be of our initiative. <laughs> so these guys are in sidecar going, come on, let's hurry up. Let's get this over with. Well, meanwhile... Back in verse, uh, at the well, in verse 7, we read how a woman of Samaria came to draw water. So here comes this one woman at a time when most people are not at the well. Most of the women would come in the morning and the evening. And she's going to draw water, and Jesus says to her, give me to drink. Now, speaking of initiative, this is Jesus on his initiative starts this conversation with this Samaritan woman. Nope, this is a no-no, Jesus. You don't do this, don't you know? The culture at this time in Jerusalem, uh, in Israel and so forth, was patriarchy on steroids, full of all of its ugly bloom. Uh, Hebrew women were not allowed to divorce their husbands. They were allowed only to have minimal property rights. Many women were segregated for worship at the temple. And whether a woman could be educated was hotly debated. The Mishnah, which is the book of additions to the Torah, like we're taking the law and we're going to keep strengthening it and we're going to add to it, which is what mostly the scribes, the Pharisees did out of their zeal, they said in their Mishnah, whoever teaches his daughter Torah teaches her obscenity. So that's why it was hotly debated. Many thought they weren't even worth the time women weren't to teach the Torah. It was awful. Um, women weren't allowed, like I said, property rights, and they weren't even allowed to be a full witness in a legal situation. And as far as talking with women, look at this Mishnah quote. A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman, on account of what men might say. And another quote is, Talk not much with womankind. They said this of a man's own wife, how much more of his fellow's wife. So as you can see, this was a harsh time. Even today, we might have a few sentiments like this that linger, like maybe we put prohibitions on young adults uh, uh, contending that they should not even attend a restaurant as a mixed gender group. I mean, stuff like this happens. But in light of all this, we can now see how amazing it is that Jesus is going to initiate a conversation with a strange woman he doesn't know at a well in Samaria. Clearly, he is not governed by the same local constructs, nor is he willing to abide by them. And he says to her, give me a drink, which is going to require a cup, a vessel for the water to be in. He's going to have to use hers. And, you know, that's a token of some informality, almost a friendship. And again, what a surprise. I mean, this would be like a white Southern gentleman asking a poor black girl for a drink from her canteen in the 1950s American South. This is just like, what? What's going on here? And so verse 9, the woman of Samaria, she said to Jesus, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she points this out. 
it's really important to see how the woman at the well responds and what it tells us about her. Because what would you expect in that society with, with under those patriarchal kind of conditions? You would expect women in that situation, a woman to just show deference, maybe look down, never make eye contact, almost have a fearful disposition, uh, maybe handing Jesus the cup without even looking at him or saying anything. But this woman, she responds and engages and says, hey, what gives? She's very comfortable to talk and even ask questions of him and immediately points out a few of these social constructs that he's ignoring. A Jew asking a Samaritan and a woman at that? You Jews don't even have any dealings with Samaritans, meaning you don't hold anything in common. That's her reference to a cup of water. You wouldn't even use the cup if I gave you one, is what she's insinuating, because that would provoke a state of uncleanness for the Jew. Well, both sides of this conversation, then both people are just fine with ignoring social norms. Jesus initiates the conversation and she responds. In verse 10, then Jesus said to her, hey, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, he responds by saying, if you knew two things, then you would ask me and receive living water. What are the two things? Number one, who I am. And two, what the gift of God is. I'm offering living water. This water is implication then full of vitality or it's alive, but moving water like artesian water, not Jacob's well water, which was only filled by rain and would be still. You know, and this is like his conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus has a spiritual intention and truth in mind. And he's using a physical example. Now he has to get his person he's talking to to get them to see the spiritual level. So ignoring the question, who are you and what is the gift? She's going to keep her thoughts on the physical water. So she now says in verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Sir. Now, this is the word, Greek word kurios, often translated as Lord. It's a, not, not Lord for Jehovah, but just a term of respect, like master or Lord. Uh, so she's stepping up in her interaction. She went from no title, how is it that you being a Jew, to saying, sir. So there's some physical uh, or some interaction going on. And and then we can make a physical observation she does. She says, look, you have no bucket. How are you going to get water out of this well? And she thinks that that living water apparently is in the well. So she's still on a physical plane. Um, And she points out again a bit of the social construct, some of the differences. Are you greater than our father Jacob as well as his sons? You know, the 12 tribes of Israel (laughs) that are the 12 tribes that are, you know, the the Jews would be very, very boastful in. Uh, he's our father. He's our ancestor too, she's really pointing out. Are you greater than him? Now, we assume she's expecting a negative answer, but, you know, she's engaging. She's keeping up in the conversation, sending a bar back, perhaps a, a smile even, as there's some positive banter that's going on, showing that this woman has some spunk, and she likes this interaction of wits, and she's not cowering in patriarchal bondage. So verse 13, we read how Jesus answered. He said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up 
into everlasting life. He now says something really, truly radical and amazing and compelling. You drink this Jacob's water, physical water, you'll thirst again. You'll need to keep coming back over and over. You'll not be satisfied. But, verse 14, in contrast, whoever, and here's the whosoever language again, anybody language, like John 3.15, John 3.16, the invitation, whoever will drink, and this is an aorist tense verb, which means, you know, a decisive action, but it's also an act of choice. So it's an act of your volition. You choose, you drink the water that I give. And who's the source of this? Jesus. And who is he? Well, he's got supernatural. He's God. So he can give this, this water, which he calls a gift, even a few a verses, on verse 10, a few verses earlier. Whoever drinks this water that I give, whoever will drink that, will never, ever, ever, ever thirst again. Now, it didn't have all those evers in there. No, but the Greek phrase is ume, which is, uh, in the Greek, a, the strongest negative that you could have written. So he's being very decisive, never thirst again. In fact, he then says, the water will become, in the person who drinks it, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And there's the spiritual gift, everlasting life. Vibrant, active, spiritual life, satisfied satisfaction within, a thirst, an inner craving, an inner desire that is now satisfied, not a physical one like food or sex or power or thirst, but an inner desire to be known, to have no secrets, and yet know that you are loved and accepted and embraced as you are. How? How can that be? You know, it's like Nicodemus asked in his conversation, how can one be born from above? So we can ask now, hey, Jesus, how can this living waters be. Well, we go to, to a few pages over to John chapter 7, uh, a little bit further in his ministry in the future here. He is in Jerusalem in this case, and notice what he says at the, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. He makes kind of a last declaration there in the public. He says in John seven thirty seven, on the last day of that great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this is he, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. And so the rivers of water, well, that's the Spirit. Does anyone thirst? He says, anyone thirst? Hey, <laughs> that's all of us. That's you. That's me listening right now. That's us. This is the how. He says, believe in me believe, which is to be persuaded so that you trust, you'll rely on. So be convinced of the words of Jesus. That means who he is, what he says. And as we believe in him, that he is God come in the flesh. He's the Messiah that has come to Israel, the promised one. That was his audience in John chapter 7. And he, though, is also the Savior of the world. And that's his audience now, you and I, anyone who's listening, whosoever. The Savior will give his life, we know, a ransom for many. He will pay for our sins, everyone. In Christ, we have forgiveness. Every resentment, every lie, every lust, every abuse, every hatred, every cheating incident, every sin, all of it. And the guilt of our sin, all of that was poured out on him, Christ, at Calvary on the cross, and he died in our place and cried out, it is finished, which means paid in full. So believe that. He is now resurrected and alive, and he is giving the gift of life. 
declaring you righteous when you believe in him. And then you receive the Holy Spirit, and out of your heart will flow living, spiritually alive, active rivers of living water. The waters then speak of our relationship with Christ and the spirit that indwells us, the love that we can have in that relationship. So, friends, do you thirst? Are you looking for contentment or for some hope? Like, what happens when I die? Does God really love me? Can I really be forgiven? Will I ever be known and loved at the same time? Can I have assurance of heaven? Are my sins really removed? Could it be that I can be a child of God and be safe and secure in him? Oh, I thirst. I want answers to those things. I want to know that kind of knowledge speaks to our soul and grabs a hold of us and tells us we are loved and it'll be okay, that God is for you. Nothing can separate you from his love. And that truth satisfies. And as you believe in Christ and become uh, uh, born from above with Nicodemus or here receive the Spirit and have rivers of living water will be satisfied. And it brings a relief and peace. And it's to those who believe in me, as Jesus said. So take him at his word. He doesn't lie. And he, you will have rivers of living water flowing out. And as verse 39 in John 7 said, that he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells you and abides in you. And it's making his claim on you. You belong to me, is what God is saying. And you are mine. And it's for whosoever. So as we go back to John chapter 4 and back to our conversation with this woman, we then see that Jesus has just said this, this water, whoever drinks this water will never thirst again. But we'll have a fountain of waters springing up into everlasting life. So verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So she is now almost playfully responding. She's like got a smile in her voice, Sir, I'm like, you said I would love and uh, would be able to, you know, come back and have this water and come here daily. I would love to not have to be constantly coming back and be satisfied with my physical thirst. So, hey, you know, this guy, she's thinking to herself probably, he seems nice, but man, he's a little weird. But because she's not still clicking yet with Jesus as far that as the sense that he's talking about spiritual things and she's still thinking in the physical dimension. But she does have some personality. She has some spunk and ability to banter here. And then verse 16, out of nowhere, Jesus says, Go call your husband and come here. Total change of discourse. Why? Why is he doing this? Well, we'll see in a minute. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have or are living with is not your husband. And in that, well, you spoke truly. So she acknowledges she has no husband, but boy, this just got awkward. I mean, this conversation just got heavy. Whoa. But Jesus commends her for being honest. You're right. You don't have a husband, but you've had five, etc. Now, why, Jesus? Why are you doing this? You know, the fundamentalist amongst us might say, well, it's to condemn her for her sin and to put her in her place. Or maybe the more evangelical Christian might say, oh, it's to shame her and expose her sin so she can admit how awful she is, so she can repent and so forth. But I don't think that's it at all, neither of them. 
Let's note that Jesus never condemns her for her sin or speaks against that. But what he does do, the primary problem that the woman had that he was seeking here was not her sin, but it was her thirst. It's her thirst that Jesus is appealing to. That's what he's addressing, how he can fulfill her inner thirst and craving in which these sinful problems are stemming out from. He's going for ground zero, just like he did with Nicodemus. Now, her thirst for what? Well, now we have a big hint. She's had five failed relationships. She must have a thirst and a desire for a positive relationship where she is known and loved and cared for and accepted, and she can be satisfied. But we don't know what went wrong with her previous relationships. The Bible there doesn't even say that she was divorced. She could have been widowed five times, but most likely not. We just assume that. But, you know, women didn't divorce men in that culture, so that means she was divorced. She was tossed out or rejected perhaps five times. Maybe it was a combination of one was a widow, one, one died, others divorced, but whatever it is, she is raw inside. Perhaps she's been used and abused, perhaps mistreated. Maybe not. Maybe she's the one who kept running out and was unfaithful. But either way, she is empty and has come up empty over and over. And she is not satisfied in this emotional attachment relationship love inside. This is why Jesus came to Sychar, Samaria. He came. He had to go. Must needs. He needed to go to meet a woman who was thirsty. Does your Savior go to a place of small reputation to meet someone living in adultery? Does your Lord travel far to meet a person who has failed in marriage over and over? Does your God go looking for people who are on the wrong side of social categories? Does God want you, whosoever? Yes. Why not? Why wouldn't he? So you can respond by faith. Why not now, today, seeing that he loves you, he's pursuing you, just like he was this woman at the well. And as you believe in him, you'll enjoy rivers of water welling up inside. The water he's offering is not about being cleansed. The water he's offering, if taken, means you'll never be thirsty, internally, spiritually satisfied. I'm going to guess there was a dramatic pause at the well at this time. So many emotions she must have been having. Some surprise, anxiety. I mean, how does he know all this? Comfort, strange. He is really compelling, though. There is hope. I mean, now we're on a spiritual level, and I'm a mess. Maybe this will be encouraging or good for me. And then she finally speaks words in verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So she immediately goes for this question. Now notice, sir, you're a prophet. She's now gone from unnamed, from not even giving him a title to a Jew to, uh, to, to sir to prophet. And you don't normally meet prophets. Prophets were not uh, the norm in that day at all. So this is like, whoa. And right away, a prophet, she starts to think on a spiritual level, on a religious level. And where do we place, where do we have worship? So she notes, she's not ignorant. She knows what is the thinking, what's the problem between the Jews and the Samaritan and this religious level. It's where they worship the temple at Mount Gerizim or the temple in Jerusalem and this physical place of worship. And she talks about our fathers here where they told us to worship. She mentioned our father Jacob earlier. So she knows some of her history. She's not ignorant. And she goes right away to that religious question because this is something you would ask a prophet. 
So Jesus changes, you know, says, go get your husband. And he brought this up. And the reason why was not to shame her, or point out her miserable sin, but to elevate her understanding of who he is by moving the conversation from the physical to the spiritual. And that's exactly what she did. And so now they're on a, a better, higher plane. And Jesus said to her in verse 21, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, meaning the Samaritans. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him, and God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Man, he answers her question and gives her a major amount of new revelation. Things that haven't even been said in others, you know, before. Like Nicodemus had never known this. And he says, very soon worship will not be at Gerizim or Jerusalem. Worship will be for the Father. And he mentions by name, the Father. This is a new idea. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not contained in places and temples where there's walls, but in spirit and truth. And the father is looking for that. Boy, this is all fast and furious now. Her head must be spinning. She does not pretend to comprehend this. Uh, she just says to this in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She had this basic understanding. Messiah is coming. And how would she know this? Well, the Torah. The first five books of uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, they still, she still understood that and believed that. And the Samaritans, the Messiah would be coming for the Samaritans, she assumed. So she knew some scripture. She has way more going on than we might have thought, but it still hadn't all clicked yet as there were gaps in her thinking. But this conversation, now she's saying from prophet to Messiah, he's coming. He will really help us in this. And verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. He bluntly states that he's the Messiah. He's the one that she was waiting for. This is the only time he clearly identifies himself as the Messiah before his trial. And he does so to an unnamed Samaritan woman sitting at a well. This is a powerful moment. You know, much later, when Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he tells the, the soldiers who he is, and they all fell over. I mean, there's a spiritual dynamic going on here. And, and she's now gone from not even addressing him with a title to calling him sir and Jew and are you greater than Jacob? I see you're a prophet, Messiah. And she gets it. It clicks. And she's on the spiritual level. Jesus says, I am he. And we see in verse 28, the woman left her water pot and went her way, ran back into the city where there's going to be a whole other episode next week of what happens there. <clears throat> so we'll have a lot to say about that. But for now, let's close with a couple of observations. There's many we could make, but let's just note this. God will meet you, friends, right where you're at, in your normal routine, in your daily dull blah, blah. The woman's just going out to get water at a well at noon. And boom, there's Jesus. You know, like Zacchaeus, Jesus has, uh, what he, he told Zacchaeus, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
You see, the Lord has nothing but love for us, nothing but forgiveness, nothing but life, nothing but to give us assurance and security and everlasting life and the rivers of living water flowing up from within, bubbling with the knowledge of being loved and found. Why not you? Why not now? He's coming into your normal routine, your daily life. Be persuaded that he loves you and he wants you and he's seeking you. And these words are true. And when you believe on him, you will know you have eternal life. Another thing we could note here is look at the barriers that were crossed by Jesus. I mean, geographical barriers, he's going to go right into Samaria. Ethnic barriers, he doesn't care if they're mixed breeds, half breeds, whatever they are. Religious barriers, he doesn't care if they were going to worship here or there because there's something called truth and something higher that transcends that that he wants them to see. Gender barriers, no, he ignores those. Social barriers, no, he ignores those because she is an outcast. We'll see a little bit next time, a little bit why. She was an outcast. You see, grace doesn't regard the barriers. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present in these attributes. Well, no, guess what? He's also all-gracious. He's the God of grace. And so he gives unmerited and undeserved goodness and kindness and favor to all. You know, I saw a feminist poster once that says, well-behaved women seldom make history. And I thought, you know, that should be true of believers as well in the sense of social constructs and social norms. I mean, we should be, as a people of Christ, counter-cultural. And here's a vivid example of how Jesus was that way. And as followers of him, may we be going into places outside of our comfort zones, seeking all humanity, seeing them as image bearers of the Creator, no matter the category. And may we lose those categories and learn more and more of our own identity in him. And so... We'll leave our conversation here, and we'll pick up next time. We'll see the epilogue to the story. We'll make some comparisons, as I said, between this woman and Nicodemus and draw some things together. I do hope you will stay tuned for all of that. But for now, let's pray. Father, we are so glad to hear this story, to see another story of how you have uh, found someone and gave revelation and desire for us to believe. Here we see in this story our need for our love and relationship and connection with you to be accepted, to be pursued, to just, again, to show how you you are available to all of us, whosoever. So may you convince every listener, Lord, the simplicity of salvation and eternal life to just believe and take freely the gift. And it's stated just like taking a drink of water. How simple. Leads to life. May we all know for sure that we have life and that this life is forever. And we thank you again for seeking us, finding us, and saving us when we believe. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening. And please give us a like on your podcast provider. That can always help us. And so uh, let me leave you with this. Remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always a